This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Horace Didu from Isimco and Clayton Christensen Institute, who is back for another trilogy on our podcast to discuss modular revolution, startup strategy, Apple and cars. In the final part of the trilogy, we discuss how traditional automotive companies such as Toyota are tackling disruption from both ends on the car, Tesla as an energy company, what the iPhone equivalent of the car will look like. Welcome back. With me here is Horace Dedu, founder of the famous isimco.com and senior fellow of Clayton Christensen Institute. We are at the final part of our conversation, and it's best to let our audience know that we have been doing this two hours of recording with the Apple AirPods on, yeah. and we don't seem to yeah. have any problems with Apple products. Now, let's start our discussion on the automotive industry moving forward. Beginning from Asia, I understand that you have visited Toyota recently and you are also an avid reader on the history of the transportation industry. Toyota has recently become the second largest player after the VW Group and was one of the innovators in the industry with lean or just-in-time manufacturing that led to the lean startup concept. It has definitely understood that it's under siege from Uber, Google, Tesla and Apple with the rumored Project Titan. How will you advise Toyota or any traditional company to cope with such disruption coming forward? You know, I have a huge admiration for Toyota. It's one of those things because it is one of the canonical examples of disruption. We've always been, uh, we meaning the Institute and Clay and the Harvard Business School in general, I think we've always been admirers of of Toyota. And the secret, and I've spoken to people also who are now professors at MIT Sloan, the secret to Toyota is that they came up with a great idea called Lean or Just in Time and have been milking it since, is that the very idea of Lean is more of the idea of constant learning and adaptation. The types of adjustments they make on a continuous basis to their production system are just staggering. I mean, the factory of today looks very different than the factory of 1990s, which looks very different than the factory from the 1980s. In fact, so much so that you can't even think of it as a factory, but as a network of factories, as a network of networks even, that you have 140 plants worldwide, each one with its own character, each one with its own story and evolution. It's each one with its own millions of innovations internally that then they try to export to one another. So it's just almost like a living, breathing innovation machine at a, at a very, very granular level. So there's a, you have to have a huge respect for, for them. Having said that, I'm not a fan of the product. I don't own a Toyota. Once I hadn't used Toyota, but I only owned it for about a year. So I'm not a fan of the designs or anything like that, but I am a fan of the business. And you can live like that. I mean, I am, I'm a fan of German cars in general. Yeah, I, I like German cars, but I, I wouldn't recommend German. You have not tried a Lexus before, Horace? Lexus? You know, I've been a passenger. I've never really owned one. I've, have I driven a Lexus? Yes, I have driven a Lexus. Yes, I have. In fact, it was a hybrid Lexus. They're, they're fine cars. Don't get me wrong. It's just that when it comes to cars, you shouldn't ask me about what to buy. I always reckon, I always point out that my preference for product in the car industry are uh, more or less a list of the least popular products. But sometimes people say they're good, but unpopular. So I don't want to project my personal taste into this. 
as a business is fantastic though it's unbelievable and everyone one learns from toyota toyota has actually given the world a lot of its innovations by essentially saying here's here's how we do it there's no secrets what their real secret is that what you see now isn't what we're going to be doing 10 years from now so we're going to keep evolving and you can try to keep up with us but our skill our magic is in our ability to evolve rapidly so you could argue it is it's a learning algorithm it's a it's a company that learns having said that there are issues with outside forces so what they've been learning is how to produce cars how to produce cars and develop cars in a very efficient manner so that allows them to shrink the production cycle to expand the portfolio to do all the things that measurably make for a great car company. The problem and I think this is the real threat and, and as technologists we we don't pay attention to production. We pay attention to the performance or components in the car and we look at things like integrating new technologies. And in that sense maybe Toyota is a laggard. And this is why when you look at things like the drivetrain Toyota has been trying to make these giant leaps forward with hydrogen, giant leaps forward, and they have made them with, with hybrid, but it, it takes decades for some of these ideas to propagate, and sometimes they don't take off as hydrogen hasn't yet. But sometimes, they, as a result, they shun certain things, which may actually be the right path forward. So for a long time, they shunned the diesel, and then they shunned the electric drive system. And now the electric is the really exciting new drivetrain out there. Now, is that going to disrupt? My argument would be no, because whatever they've learned in hybrid could be applicable for a while until just maybe two years ago, they were the largest consumer of automotive batteries because all the hybrid cars they built, of which there were more than 8 million last time I looked at, that's a lot more than the few, you know, the 80, 50,000 per year that it is Tesla's output. So imagine 8 million is a, is a huge number. And although the kilowatts per car kilowatt hours per car is not the same as a Tesla. There's still, a, you know, 8 million of these battery so sort of hybrid cars. So uh, Toyota has a lot of competency with batteries and, and electric motors, and certainly they can leverage that going forward. So I'm not worried too much about the electric side of the or the drivetrain side of the question. I think longer term in terms of self-driving and other technologies, again, it's a question uh, when you look at disruption, you don't ask who's ahead. You ask who has the rate of growth. And who can obtain the rate of growth necessary? What are the conditions that drive rate of growth? So the conditions, are they capital? Are they resources? Are they skill? Are they raw materials that might be scarce and so on? And you, you look at these things and check off and say, okay, I don't see them being unable to catch up with respect to some of that technology. And, and I think that in the case of Toyota, I, I, a lot of the technologies I hear about are sustaining Drivetrain is, I think, sustaining. In-car computing systems are sustaining to some degree. Production systems, certainly. So I, I don't know if so. So here's here's the final test. There's three companies at the top of the list: Toyota, Volkswagen, and General Motors, and they've swapped places. Uh, GM used to be number one, then Toyota was number one, and now VW is number one. But they're all within nine to eleven million units a year. And that's been true, I don't know how many years now. So I don't, the, the question really in terms of disruption is that will we see on the surfer, will we see a new company joining that, that list, bumping off someone from that top? And the contenders might be Korea and China, or are we going to see somebody completely from nowhere coming and joining even the top 10 and changing the landscape of automotive industry by challenging? Now, Chinese companies have been coming into that field, they get a seat at the table the same way Korea did, the same way 
uh, Japan did, even Volkswagen back in the day. They all joined through production, through control over the local markets, through some form of protectionism that allowed local champions to rise and so on. And this has been the story of the industry. So now we have this makeup of the structure of the industry with only really six countries controlling all, almost the entire production system. Some new countries may join simply because they're going to protect their industries and allow them to join that list, as China did. Maybe India, my expectation is India, although it'll take a few more years, will join that rank of the top producing countries. But fundamentally, this is all seems it feels sustaining in the sense that the, the pie gets bigger, new elements are added to that pie. So although, you know, it's like the pie gets bigger, but the slices that make up the new pie are taken by new players, but it doesn't mean that you kick out somebody from the existing list. What's more interesting is how do you kick people out? This is truly the disruptive angle. The disruptive angle would be, can you see a future in the near future, even 10 years from now, where the top five, even the top 10, are entrants. That's what happened in the phone business. That's what happened in the computer business. That's what happened in the services business and maybe happening even in the banking business. When you look through all of these industries and you truly see disruption, you see century-old competitors just evaporating, disappearing, going bankrupt, being absorbed, being bought out, all of those things that happen. Will that happen to the car industry? That's really the big question. It's a tough industry to make these changes because of protectionism, because of the millions of jobs that are attached and the political base that exists. But that's what technologists, I think somewhat utopian technologists are dreaming of, that somehow that will be possible through new technologies, new components, new architectures, self-driving. And a lot of people who who had never really looked at the car industry before, came to this conclusion. And I think the idea is that, oh, if we only had self-driving, everything will change. And they started doing calculations and saying all the cars will be gone and will reduce driving and will reduce parking, will reduce all these things. Arithmetically, that may be the case, but we have to study this as a far more complex system as opposed to components or as opposed to vehicles versus infrastructure. So I'm a little bit more cautious about how I'm like at this point, I'm the futurist. I say, yeah, those changes will occur, but I'm not going to be able to tell you when. And I'm cautioning people when they say, oh, I know it's going to happen in five years. I'm saying, let's look at a little bit more data. I think that may not happen as quickly as you think. So Toyota might be safe for a while. If things go slowly, the incumbents, again, the incumbents always win when time is not of the essence. The entrants always win when time is very important. And not always, I should say they're in favor. And the auto industry just is still too slow to, you know, if you're Tesla, let, let me go back to Tesla for a minute. This is a company that was formed in 2004. It's already, what, 13 years old. It's been in production with the car since at least is it seven years now, I, I you know I have to recall the first Roadster that they shipped, and they're, they just closed the year with seventy five thousand cars built. Like seventy five thousand doesn't even put them in the top fifty manufacturers in the world. So things as rapid as we think the Tesla's entry is, it's nowhere near what happened in the phone business. We're nowhere near what happened in even the computer business back in the eighties. And it's certainly not impacting the volumes of production globally. Even having said that, though, the market capitalization of, of Tesla has just reached the level of Nissan, which I think is number four in the world. 
So with, with very few cars being made, there's a lot of expectation built into its share price that it is going to, it's essentially priced as if it's a top five player. But it's not even a top 50 player when it comes to volumes and certainly not when it comes to profits or, or even sales. So it, it's a bit of, a, of an interesting, what it signals mainly is that the anticipation and the expectation of change is far faster than what I think will happen. And I think those people making those bets on, on Tesla are just assuming that things will happen quickly. Uh, you know, it may happen that Tesla will be number four or five in the world, but at the rate they're going, it's going to take a lot longer. Even with the anticipated Model 3 coming on stream, it's, it's not enough. So there's a lot of skepticism of how quickly that it will actually ramp up. We will take an advertisement break for the moment. Innovation and value generation remained at the forefront of the fourth edition of the IoT Asia Conference, which returns on the 29th to 30th of March at the Singapore Expo Exhibition Halls. Join the three-track conference to learn about the latest developments and initiatives from top leaders and leading lights in the field. Use the code IOT7AASIA to get a 10% discount off the conference rates except academic. Coming back. Horace, so this is where my biggest question comes in. I've heard many times from your Isimka and Critical Path podcast that your issue with Tesla is that they are not innovating with the manufacturing and production line. To me, Tesla is an energy company. I did not appreciate this until I've started looking into self-driving cars and their implications to logistics at where I'm working. The problem of energy in electric cars is important because if I have 30 to 50 electric and self-driving trucks charging at the same time in a power grid with a, within a logistics center, they can easily take off the power grid easily. We have seen Tesla had made a lot of leaps and bounds in their battery charging technology their charging stations across the United States, and their acquisition of Solar Century. Here's my question to you. Is Tesla a company disrupting the energy sector, focusing on the energy problem rather than the automotive problem? Yes. Actually, I wrote this some time ago, and I was defending that position that Tesla is evolving into an energy company. I said, if it's an energy company, then I would be more willing to accept them as a disruptive entrant. They haven't proven to be so in the car business, but they might be as an energy business. Now, a couple of things about the energy business that I think are cautionary here, and, and I, I wish them the best. I really think we need a disruptor in the energy business. But the energy business generally is a low margin business. It's a very difficult business because, again, there are politics involved, very, very even deeper and worse politics. Just to summarize, if you move from car making, which is a low margin business, and get into the battery making business, you're going to be reducing your margin. And if you go from battery making to being a supplier of energy systems, you're dropping even further. So generally, these have been. Now, it may be because these, again, it, it, back to the framework, if you're redefining the industry, you're allowed to do what you're doing very well. But if you're, you're trying to compete head to head and, and saying the job is the same, but I'm better, then I, I caution and I said, wait a minute, you haven't really reinvented the industry sufficiently to allow you to be an entrant. So this is where it gets tougher and tougher and tougher, because when I look at rooftop solar business, I ask, what are the economics? Are you redefining energy at the sense of moving it to the edge of the network? And many years ago, I used to believe that that was the future. But the economics prove that it's not the future because it's much cheaper to put solar panels in the desert covering literally square kilometers of land versus rooftops, which are extremely expensive because each one has to be individually installed, maintained, wired up, and then 
to having inverters and storage locally, the costs at the local level. So computing became decentralized and it made a lot of sense for your computer to be on your desktop because actually through Moore's law and through integrated circuits, you could make it cheaper to make a million PCs than to have a computer serving a million people. That decentralization, that edge of the network type of economics was possible in computing. But when you look at solar, it's not yet clear that it's cheaper to scale rooftops versus centralized solar energy. In fact, you know, if I were to look, take a clean sheet of paper and say, how would I power Europe, let's say, forget about the United States, because the United States has lots of land it can use for solar. But if you were to say powering Europe, you'd say, well, just go to North Africa. There's lots of unused land there. Just build solar plants covering, you know, the equivalent of a small province in Germany and then pipe all that energy back north and you're all set forever. You're always going to have enough energy coming from North Africa to power Europe. In the U.S., you could do the same thing with deserts of the South. West and maybe in Asia, you could do something as well with parts of China or even Australia would be a nice home for the solar plant that would power the whole of Asia. You have transportation issues, you have storage issues, but these are not from a physics point of view, from an economics point of view, actually all that complicated. So the argument that you're better off putting it on someone's roof versus in the middle of the desert doesn't make sense. And the the numbers seem to demonstrate this, that, that a solar plant on the roof of your house is about an order of magnitude more expensive than the equivalent power coming from the grid. And the grids are very good at doing what they do. I mean, the grid is, is just, it's been around for a hundred years and it's uh, pretty reliable. It needs storage, but again, that's a solvable problem. So if Tesla steps into this and say, aha, I have the answer. We're gonna make many, many batteries. We're gonna make slightly better inverters. Well, again, you have to answer, well, why can't Chinese manufacturers make batteries the way they made solar panels when solar panels were new? And, you know, the argument I would make is that solar panel technology took off because of the subsidy model in in Germany. And so you had the sort of the the equivalent of Silicon Valley somewhere south of Berlin. And the Silicon Valley was for for solar panels. And all these startups started making solar in Germany because the, the Green Party there encouraged it and they offered incentives and did all these things. So there was a boom of solar in Germany. And then what happened is China came on stream and instead of using exotic technologies, they just made plain old crystalline silicon solar very, very cheap. And then it began to be available in Europe far cheaper than the locals would, would produce it. So there again, and that causes all kinds of cry of protectionism and dumping and then lots of political wrangling as a result and the tariffs and all these things suddenly being questioned and it just got really ugly in Europe with, with solar because because why? Because China came on stream and production came on stream. Similar patterns occurred in semiconductors, in disk drives, in flash memory. And you see the shortages in the beginning, startups saying we have the answer and then getting swamped by production in lower cost scaled areas. So China building millions and building production of uh, batteries doesn't seem that crazy to me. Now, Gigafactory is one place. Everyone can point to it, but nobody's going to point to the fact that there might be a thousand small plants in, in China that produce many more batteries than that Panasonic plant in Nevada. So we're going to see how that changes over the next few years. But I'm, I'm skeptical 
of a business which is mostly a commodity type business. So this is when you you put the thread on all of these things. I'm only rambling about these because it's kind of things I try to look at. If someone can articulate the Tesla as an energy company argument in such a way that's saying it's a platform, it's a network effect, it's a defensible because it has a brand or it has this and that. What other thing can you put forward except to say, well, we'll just make more of this stuff that is scarce today. If you think we're going to make more of this stuff that's scarce, then I can imagine lots of other people doing the same. So that's why I'm a little bit skeptical as well of that argument. Although, again, I wish them the best, and I, I really think that's a better story than trying to be, be the, the Nakoyota. That comes to my next big question. Recently, Benedict Evans described the cars today's similar to the feature phones before the iPhone era. You have pointed that out in the, the earlier parts of our conversation. I understand from Ben Beherin that he thinks that Tesla is the closest to the iPhone version of a car. Recently, I've read the book, Losing the Signal by McLeish and Siloff, the backstory behind how the BlackBerry executives were blindsided and called the iPhone the Jesus phone. Instead of asking you what the iPhone version of the car will be, I will switch the question and ask you, what do you envisage the Jesus car would be that disrupt the automotive industry? So I think automotive can be disrupted two ways because I, I have this belief in the top and the bottom versions of disruption or the diffusive versus disruptive model. The diffusive model would be that we get something that's truly wondrous and beyond what we expected. And this is something like along the lines of a vehicle that is, let's say, a Tesla, but really a smart Tesla, right? And maybe this would be what an Apple car was envisaged as. It would be a, a car that transforms behavior. So what I mean by transforms behavior is it goes from saying, I'm going to tolerate 30 minutes to an hour a day in a commute one way. So I'm going to tolerate two hours in one way on this car because it's so fantastic. I'm going to do work in this car. I'm going to do entertainment in this car. I'm going to go out in the weekend and we're all going to party in my car. Now, those things can happen instead of saying, oh, I hate being in my car because it's like traffic is awful and I just can't wait to get home saying I want to get in my car because it's the coolest place to be and I want to be in it for hours and hours on end. That change from the vehicle being a thing to the vehicle being a place, that is one of those wondrous types of iPhone type of inventions, right? That the iPhone becomes something I don't pick up just to make a call, but I want to spend half my day in, fr in front of it and I want to just soak it in. That's what the iPhone did. We went from minutes a day to hours a day in usage. That might be the way you might say a wonderful top-down type of uh, product. And that would be comfortable at a, you know, a very high price point. The trouble with Tesla right now, and it's, again, it's a great product, and it's a very high-priced product, but it doesn't change the fact that I still have to sit in traffic. It's slightly more comfortable, I would imagine. And I have an i3 from BMW, which also I call it the serenity car because it makes me feel more comfortable when I'm in traffic because it doesn't stress me out with engine running and, and noises and things like that. And then it's also programmed so that I don't have to use the accelerator or the brake that much. All of those things are good things, but they're marginal. What you really want to do is say, I want to take a nap in the car. A lot of self-driving technology could enable that. So that would be the top view of, of disruption. There's another one, which is the opposite which is that the product that would disrupt the industry would be, as I said, manufactured differently, much, much cheaper, available to millions of non-consumers. And this is a, sort of the classic low-end disruption, which means that Tata comes on stream making amazing cards for everybody, including all of Africa, or an indigenous Nigerian company, just said for the sake of argument, comes up with a card that's actually for 
for a billion people in Africa, which, which today do not have cars. That's the next Toyota, the next Volkswagen, the next Ford Model T, the next Fiat or the next, you know, Renault or the next uh, Mini. Those cars that are iconic that built the industry, there's still room for one or two more who are going to step up and actually redefine transportation for the billions who don't have it yet. I always point out that only in the U.S. we have 800 cars per thousand or 0.8 penetration of vehicles in terms of population. But if you look at it globally, it's only 18%. So there's a huge amount of non-users of cars. And maybe that's a good thing because you don't want them to be burning fuel. But then if you say, let's make them all electric and let's make them all electric for non-consumers, that's exciting. And then if you follow that thread, you might say, well, maybe that vehicle won't look like a current vehicle. Maybe that vehicle will be a two-wheeled or a three-wheeled vehicle. We'll have to see because a lot of the things that happened, Honda started with motorbikes. A lot of Asia was mobilized on two wheels, not on four wheels, and then, you know, they upgraded later on. So I would watch for that sort of low-end disruption coming in and at the same time asking, can you redefine the existing job for existing customers that will change the character of the car? That's at the high end. At the bottom, you want to look for things which are actually expanding consumption, making it available to, to non-users. Both approaches, I think, are my, you might call disruptive because they might change the structure of the industry it might change who you count amongst the top 10. It might displace existing incumbents and thus not just shake things up for the sake of shaking things up, but actually making the world a better place, right? That's the whole point of disruption. Th that's what I would be looking for. And I think there are good hints. I personally am very, very excited about at the low end, looking at something like two-wheeled electric vehicles. We see e-bikes coming up as a force. We see sharing also on two-wheeled vehicles in mega cities and urban areas. And I think there's a great opportunity to redefine urban transportation along the lines of two-wheel transport with the appropriate infrastructure, of course. We've got to segregate two wheels from four wheels. And all of that stuff has to happen also at the infrastructure level. But it is happening. It is happening in Europe and to some degree in China. So probably Singapore as well. I, I, I don't know, but I think there is some, something going on there as well. Just a quick thought as I hear you talk about the two conditions on disruption from the high end and low end. Wasn't that the same situation that the iPhone as well when from the low end you have mass production of the iPhone parts made cheaper by the Shenzhen ecosystem and from the high end you have iPhone introducing the touchscreen and a mobile operating system that allow apps to change the jobs to be done for the consumer? Exactly. This is why I study Apple and disruption, and even though they seem contradictory, Apple is very, very much the anomaly that sets, redefines the rule. This is why the iPhone is a phone, but it's also a computer, and it competes with computers above where it sort of was assumed to be. And in fact, as you can see how it actually ate into the iPad, and the iPad ate into the PC. It's all happening from below in that sense, if you think of computing. But when you think of, to, about phones and plain vanilla phones, they almost became extinct. Or if you look inside the phone and see your main apps and you see you have a music app and you have a phone app, those apps mean that they actually absorbed into the phone what used to be distinct products, right? Distinct pieces of hardware. And that is a top-down disruption. And someone put together one of these illustrations where they showed that here's the desktop of the 1980s and every single thing that was an object on your desk, literally your office desk, is now an app inside of your phone. And so you have your Rolodex and your calendar and your, your notebook and all these other things ended up in your phone and your mailbox and your inbox and everything else move into the phone, first the computer and then the phone. And so that process is not that you're making a cheaper inbox or a cheaper this, you're actually making it a lot more sophisticated, but you're redefining the way you use it. And that's what the iPhone did to the phone, the plain phone, which 
By the way, that's what the phone did to the landline. The phone, when it was the mobile phone, when it was introduced, was worse in every way than the landline almost, except that you could move around with it. So it wasn't good in terms of having sound quality. It wasn't good in terms of having reliability. But it was very good because you could take it with you and people could always get a hold of you. And so that it redefined telephony in the, in the classic sense that you didn't call a place, you called a person. That distinction meant that this was a new thing. And that allowed the phone in many ways to be a top-down disruption of the mobile phone was a, or cellular phone was a top-down disruption of the landline. And then the iPhone was a top-down disruption of the mobile phone. They both also expanded eventually consumption, which perhaps is a real test of whether it was disruptive or not. It's just billions of more people were able to use it and on and on it goes. So there's that force of, of innovation, that, that categorization of innovation from the top to the bottom and the characteristics of it. So this is what the theory all ties up is how to understand what you are doing. You are the inventor. You are the innovator. You're coming up with a new product. Should you behave as the iPhone or should you behave as the Ford Model T or should you behave as the, actually, Model T in, in many ways? Okay, never, never mind. But it's this question of what is your go-to-market strategy? How do you sequence customers? All of these things are what I think I've learned from studying Apple relative to the classic disruption theory. Horace, it's always great to talk to you. I thought the last two hours gave me two years of insights to think about, just as the last time. So as much as I hate to end this conversation, help my audience, how do they find you? So I tend to be spending most of my time on Twitter in the public domain. So please follow me on Twitter as at Asymco, A-S-Y-M-C-O. Or I do write occasionally on my blog, asymco.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well, though not putting out new stuff there very much. But feel free to follow me on, on LinkedIn. I think a lot of things uh, end up there as well if you're not a Twitter user. Just feel free to reach out on Twitter if you have questions. The podcast I, I have on a nearly weekly basis is called The Critical Path. We actually entertain questions for The Critical Path through Twitter, so you can ask questions on Twitter. We read them and answer them in our podcast, sometimes live. So look out for Critical Path as well. It's a fun thing I do. And A SimCar is another podcast. Both are on the 5x5 network. So please, you know, listen if you're interested. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to our podcast at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and TuneIn. And of course, we hope that you can drop us a recommendation on Overcast or 5-star ratings on the iTunes. Once again, Horace, thank you for coming on the show. Okay, great. I, I really enjoy being a guest. and You asked tremendously great questions. So thanks for your, uh, for your continuing support.